This message was given by Matt Harama at Campus Fellowship's Fall Conference 2022. The theme of the conference was the greatest story ever told, a look at how the Bible is one coherent story. We hope you find this encouraging. Find your Bible, please, and turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to change pace a little bit tonight. I'm going to leave the charts and the graphs. I'm going to not do those tonight. We're going to finish those off in the morning. But the part of this story, the part of the greatest story ever told that I have to tell you about tonight is too important for you to be thinking about graphs and charts. We appreciate you bearing with me for the first three sessions. I felt like I was a little more in lecturer mode. Um, I prefer to be in preacher mode. So you were more like at a class. Hopefully it was somewhat interesting. I think it's really important stuff. Like I said, foundational stuff that I wish I had when I was your age. I, I think my Christian life would have been served well by having these shelves to put these concepts on called the covenants. And so we, we've done a lot of groundwork here already. We've been through over two-thirds of the Bible's story. Tonight, I'd like to tell you about the rescue. Generation after generation falls to the same old pattern of greed, lust, Worship of false gods, selfishness, and idolatry. God's people continue to rebel against him and run away from him until they are indistinguishable from the godless nations. In fact, sometimes they're worse. I could be talking about the church today. I'm talking about our story so far. There's not a lot of distinction sometimes. Remember, we've talked about that despite God's continued offer of a blessing, of a covenantal relationship with his creation. Be like me. Be with me. I'll give you everything. His blessing is continually rejected. His mercy continually taken for granted, ignored, or exploited. And his people are continually suffering and bondage to their own inclination toward evil. The inclination of your heart is toward evil from your infancy. And all the while, in the middle chunk of this book, the middle chunk of the story, all the while the prophets are speaking to God's people and the surrounding nations because remember that this covenant is not just for one specific individual or one specific set of people. It is to impact the entire world. The whole world belongs to God and is accountable to God. So the prophets don't just speak to the nation of Israel. They speak to the surrounding nations as well. God's continually reaching out to these nations. And God is allowing this pattern of rejecting and ignoring him to play out over the course of thousands of years to prove to his people exactly what their problem is and to prove to us exactly what our problem is, that they and we are sinful from birth. They need a rescuer. Jeremiah 31, we read it this morning. I'm going to 
restart here to try to kind of get a running start. Verse 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration, I will put my teaching within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor his brother saying, neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This was preached to the nation by the prophet Jeremiah as he was watching the nation fall and get carried away into captivity, a new thing is coming. And his fellow prophet, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 36, flip to Ezekiel chapter 36 with me. In the exile, sitting in exile, sitting there, out of the promised land. 36 verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, while the house of Israel lived in their land, they defiled it with their conduct and actions. Their behavior before me was like menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath on them because of the blood that they had shed on the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered among the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and actions. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name there because it was said about them, these are the people of the Lord. Yet they had to leave his land in exile. But then I had concern for my name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say this to the house of Israel. This is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. You have profaned among them. The name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord God when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from the countries, and I will bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Jeremiah said, a new deal is coming 
Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel, describes exactly what that's going to look like. Sprinkled with clean water. A removal of this heart that is bent toward nothing but evil all day. And giving them a heart of flesh, a tender heart, sensitive to the Lord and God's spirit sealed inside of them, causing them to want to do the Lord's will, to want to follow their loving creator's command to be blessed and be kings, solving the problem, finally. How is he going to do that? Well, an earlier prophet, Isaiah, Flip with me to Isaiah chapter 9. An earlier prophet talked about how. And it's not a how, it's a who. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. Isaiah talks about this figure, the chosen one, the servant of the Lord. And he starts describing him in chapter 9 with the declaration of good news that we often repeat at Christmas time because we're confused about our church calendars and how they work. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils of war for you have shattered the oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of the oppressor, just like you did on that day at Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and every bloodied garment of war will be burned as few for the fire, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of peace. The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and with righteousness. From now on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. He goes on about this figure, describing him so differently that Jewish theologians at the time of Jesus thought maybe they were talking about two separate people. But he's talking about the same figure. And he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. We didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all, like sheep, we went astray. We all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and he had spoken not deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, his offspring. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. By his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Isaiah 53 reads like it belongs in the New Testament, doesn't it? Because it's talking about the new covenant. It's talking about Jesus. What he did and how he did it. And for decades and decades and decades, Israel was in captivity. And the prophets continued to declare this message. Return to the Lord. There is a judgment day coming. And there is a Messiah and a hope coming. And God's people continued to spurn him until one day all the prophets went silent for 400 years. After the prophet Malachi, 400 years with no prophet declaring, this is the word of the Lord. Nobody heard from God for 400 years. 400 years of striving to survive as a people. Even one time they successfully revolted and took back part of the city of Jerusalem. But eventually they were dominated by the Roman Empire. They were a broken kingdom. No king on the promised throne of David, not anymore. 400 years of waiting for the promised Messiah, generation after generation, hearing echoes of Isaiah. And I wonder if maybe hope was starting to dwindle. We know that the theologians were starting to get very creative about maybe what the prophets meant by this whole thing of Messiah. Maybe we missed it. Maybe it's us. Maybe we're supposed to be worthy of the Messiah. Now turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 1. 400 years with no prophetic word from the Lord. And then, one day, in a small rural village, a nowhere backwater 
called Nazareth. A no-name handyman named Joseph, whose only claim to fame was that he was, like a lot of people at that time, a relative of the great King David. He was engaged to this young woman named Mary, but you see, recently there was a problem because we just found out she's pregnant and I've never been with her. And now she's claiming that God gave her this special vision and that she hasn't actually been with anyone, but that this child is some miracle, some special thing, like crazy special, like she's saying he's the Messiah. But we haven't heard anything from God in like 400 years, and we're not even sure we understood what this whole Messiah thing was about in the first place. I mean, she has to be lying, right? Covering up for a night of indiscretion with somebody. But she seems honest. I mean, she's always seemed honest. That's part of the thing that Joseph liked about her. She always has been honest with him before. You know what? Instead of making a big deal out of it, he decides to simply let her go quietly and he breaks off the engagement, preserving as much honor for the both of them as possible. Matthew 1, verse 20. But after he considered these things, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord By the Lord, through the prophet, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. The first part of every covenant God made. And I wonder if some hope started to spark that night. (laughs) Can it be true? Can all the prophecies actually be true? It's been 400 years with no more words from God. Maybe those words are just legends by now, but could this be true? What was this dream about? And then as it was time for the baby to be born, why why would the creator of the universe not provide even a place and just an inn for this baby to be born? He had to be born in a stable. But then a strange thing happened. Some shepherds showed up. They knew where to find us, and they were looking for us. And they, they told him about a huge choir of angels announcing the birth of the, of the Messiah. I mean, imagine an angelic host. If a choir of angels is to show up to anybody to announce really, really important news, why would it be to shepherds, not priests or kings? I mean... And the Messiah, born into a poor family, the family of a manual laborer. Could there be a more humble, backwards beginning for the most important person ever to walk the planet? This Jesus, this Jesus grows up and he performs powerful miracles, teaches like nothing they've ever heard before. He claims to be the promised 
rescuer. He claims to be the offspring of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. He claims to be the one who succeeded where Adam failed. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Flip forward just a little bit. Satan came to Jesus just like he did to Eve in the garden. And he said, did God really say? And Jesus responds to Satan the way Adam should have. Verse 10, Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. He claims to be the offspring, singular, of Abraham who will bring blessing to the whole world. He claims to be the prophet greater than Moses, not only giving the law, but reminding everyone the heart of what the law actually is in the first place. And not only that, but he keeps it perfectly his whole life. He claims to be the promised son of David who will finally sit on an eternal throne, and he has the power to back up these claims continually healing the sick, casting out demons, commanding the weather, creating food from nothing, foiling the traps of the religious elite, calling the sheep to come to him, and they come to him. Crowds and crowds and crowds come to him. But there's a problem. There's a problem, you see. I mean, where's his rod of iron? How is he going to overthrow the oppressors? How is this homeless wanderer going to reign on the throne of David forever? Where is his army? And now he's talking about dying? That doesn't seem like a king ruling forever. And he's talking about the rest of us following him in his death? Are you kidding me? Wait a second. He's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and What? But he's talking about rising from the dead and that we'll follow him there too. And he's talking about a kingdom. Kingdom, yes, finally, kingdom. That's the thing we're waiting for. But wait, the kingdom, it's not of this world. What are you talking about, Jesus? See, Jesus knows our real problem. He knows about our slavery to sin. And he knows the bondage that needs to be broken first is not political. That even if he were to successfully overthrow the most powerful empire the world has ever seen to that point, which he could have. Have you heard where he told the soldiers, do you not know that any time I could call how many legions of angels to my side? That that was one more legion than the Roman army had in the entire world at the time. And a legion is a lot of people, a lot of angels. He could have successfully overthrown the most powerful empire in the world, but even if he did that, the problem would remain because just like sin survived the flood, sin would have survived that overthrow. He needed to overthrow, not the Roman Empire, he needed to overthrow sin itself. We'd be right back to the same spot within a generation if Jesus did what the people wanted him to do. Something new had to happen. Sin had to be dealt with. Sin had to be paid for. Sin had to be canceled. Sin's chains had to be crushed. 
the problem is in the thousands of years of human history, through perfect paradise, through perfect promise, through perfect law, through perfect government, we've never been able to make that happen. Sin's chains have shackled us since the day Adam and Eve decided they wanted to know, they wanted to be the ones declaring good from evil. We needed a new deal. We needed a new covenant. And Christ kicked that covenant off at his final Passover meal celebration with his disciples. Flip to Matthew chapter 26 with me. As they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread and he blessed and broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out from many for the forgiveness of sins. The disciples were together. They were celebrating a hugely significant holiday, the Passover. Everyone present would have remembered the meaning of this meal. It recalled God's rescue of the Israelites from Egypt. The final plague that God plagued the Israelites with was an angel of death killing the firstborn male of every family in that land whose Doorpost was not covered by the blood of the lamb. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 12. You can, you can stay where you are. If you want to flip with me, that's great. But here's what the Passover is about. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, this is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and they did this and they did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Every Israelite who believed the prophet that this is what God says, do this really weird thing. Paint your door frame with the blood of a sacrificial lamb and the angel of death will pass over you. Anyone who believed the Lord and acted accordingly, was saved through faith in what God told them to do. And anyone who didn't, their firstborn son died. And again, God not being cruel, not asking of anyone else something he was not willing to do himself. The death of his firstborn son, his only son who he loved. Understanding this covenant structure of the Bible that we've been talking about this weekend and the details of the old covenant will help you so much when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament. It'll help you understand what it's saying. The New Testament epistles, they all use imagery from the covenants to explain the effect of Jesus' work on the cross. Let's go, we're going to look through Galatians real quick. Go to Galatians chapter 2. 
Paul's explaining to Jewish listeners, Jewish readers, why the law is now obsolete and why he, a Jew, doesn't need to worry about the law anymore. And he's defending, hey, we're Jews by birth, verse 15. We're Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves, Jews, even we Jews ourselves, we have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That's the whole problem. Nobody could keep the law. Nobody would keep the law. It's an important distinction, could versus would. Nobody would keep the law. No human being has ever been justified by the law because no human being apart from Jesus Christ has ever kept the law. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Christ kept the law. Christ also became the curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, the tree being symbolic for the cross. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. How many of you have read that verse before and have never really known what the promise to Abraham was about? But now with this covenant structure, we know what the law is about, why it was a problem, and now we know what this promise, the blessing of Abraham could come to the Gentiles so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. And let's look at chapter four. Remember that whole thing with Hagar and Ishmael? Look at verse 22, chapter four, verse 22. It's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman, but the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one of the free woman was born through the promise. These things were to be taken, these things can be taken figuratively. For the two women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, meaning the Mosaic covenant, and bears children in slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Paul is being so ironic to the with the Galatians here. So ironic. I thought it was the offspring of Abraham who eventually became Israel. Yeah, but the way you're acting about it, Jews, you're acting just like the offspring of Hagar. The way, okay, <laughs> the way that they were trying to use the law, the law was designed to show them the fundamental problem. The law was designed to teach us our fundamental problem and highlight our fundamental problem like the purple dye on the dentist that the dentist used to show you how terrible you are at keeping your teeth clean. The law was like that for us. It was designed to show us our problem. They were trying to use it to be righteous on their own. Just like Sarah and Abram said, well, we can't really have children on our own. I have an idea. Let's, uh, Abram, go sleep with my slave woman. And Abram went, okay, <laughs> sounds great. Instead of, no, that's a terrible idea. The Israelites were trying to use the law to be righteous on their own, apart from faith. 
Abram and Sarah tried to to obtain the promise of God through their own effort, and it failed because bad things happen when you try to make the promises of God happen in your life through your own effort. We're going to look at Romans now for a little bit to talk about Abraham a little bit more. Romans 4. You're going to get your workout with your Bibles. So what will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? I mean, if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, their pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But this is the most important verse in the Bible. Verse five. To the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. So, my friends, let me ask you a question. Are your sins covered by the blood of the Lamb? Do you trust Jesus to do the work you couldn't do? Do you trust that he washes away all your guilt and all your shame? Do you trust that God's promise that he will sprinkle clean water on you and give you a new heart is true? And that the way he can do that is by Jesus taking on the weight of the law and fulfilling it and taking on the curse you deserved and dying it. Do you believe that? Or are you trying to live your life according to your own rules? Are you still under the condemnation for your sin or do you trust in Christ's new covenant, the work he accomplished that you never could? An understanding of God's covenant with Adam with, with an understanding of that covenant, we can better understand the effect of Adam's sin. Turn the page to Romans chapter 5. Here's what Adam's sin did. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. The reason there is death in the world is because of one man's sin. And you guys prove that that's the case because you all sin. I prove that that's the case because I sin. Verse 17. If by the one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus. This is saying how much greater is God's gift than Adam's sin. One sin caused the death of the whole human race. 
the sacrifice that pays for the sin of the, that whole race is so much bigger than that. How much bigger is God's gift than Adam's sin? One sin leading to death for everybody. One act of righteousness leading to salvation for everybody. All who believe. Verse 18. So then, as one, as through, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. And it's talking about it's available for everyone. Verse 19. For, for just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Why the law? The law came along, verse 20, to multiply the trespass, meaning to magnify it, to put it under a microscope, to show how big it actually is. But where sin is multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're having trouble following this, Paul sometimes is a little tricky to follow. Let me try to sum it up for you. God put the law in place on our tart <laughs> to show us the magnitude of our problem so that we could see it clearly. The law showed us how big the problem was that every sin needs a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to pay for the sin. Do you know how many cows and goats and turtle doves were going into that temple every single day to be slaughtered for the atonement for sin? Every sin needs a blood payment for atonement. That's what the law shows us. In showing us the magnitude of the problem, he's also showing us the magnitude of his grace. We can see our problem. We can see what he means when he says, in Genesis, our heart is inclined toward evil from our youth. Mountains of sin. Heaps of dead Oxen and goats and sheep and turtle doves. So we can see the scope of the solution God is providing in Jesus. We can see how righteous and good Jesus is because his one sacrifice paid for all of that. His one sacrifice effectively paid for all that and every other sin you will ever commit or anyone else will ever commit. That's how Mag that's how magnificent, how huge, how big, how, how, I don't even know the word. Magnitudinous. <laughs> Jesus' sacrifice is. Jesus paid for all that sin. You can't out-sin God's grace. There is no one here who has sinned too much for God's forgiveness. Isn't that good news? Look at Romans 8, verse 1. For those of us who believe in Christ, the penalty of our sin is paid. Verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by your flesh, God did. 
He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That's good news. The debt is paid. The problem is solved. Sin is canceled. But it doesn't feel like it, does it? The chains are gone, but it doesn't feel like it, does it? That's another part of the promise. We have to believe. We can't make happen on our own effort. God did it. Do we trust him? Like he told Abram, get up from your land and your family and go to the place I'm going to show you. Do we say, okay. Or do we say, no, I still got to make it happen. I don't quite believe it's done. But if we do believe, oh, if we do believe, what should we do? What do we do? What do we do? Peter preached the first sermon after Jesus' resurrection on the day of Pentecost. And he preached with the power of the Holy Spirit. And many thousands of people heard him and were cut to the heart. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, that's us. And as many as the Lord, our God, will call to himself. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. What is he saying? Repent. What does that word mean? Literally, it means something like, think again. Change your mind. Know different things. Metanoel in Greek. Think different things. Another way it's used is turn around. That's what the Latin repent, repent means. Turn around. Stop thinking this way. Start thinking this way. Stop going your way. Pursuing your goals and your dreams. Start pursuing God's plan for you. Turn around. Stop walking in the way of the world, the way that seems right to you. Start following Christ. Start following his teachings and be baptized, Peter says. What does that mean? Well, yeah, it means getting dunked in water, but that's a symbol of what it means. Getting baptized is an outward symbol, an outward display of an inward reality. Going into the water, dying to yourself and your old way of life, coming up out of the water, rising from the dead into new life in Christ. It's a public declaration that Christ intends for us to do that says, I'm with Jesus now. I'm with his church now. It's to be done publicly. 
Treat me like a Christian is what you are telling people who are seeing it. So go get dunked in water. Declare that. And be with his people in the church. If we keep reading Acts, which we will do in the morning, Lord willing, we'll see that the first thing that happened as immediate response to Peter saying, repent and be baptized, was what happened? They joined together and started the church. So I'm going to leave you with this tonight. We're going to, just for a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to pray silently. We're going to put on a little bit of music. And I want you to think and pray and meditate. And if you do trust in Christ, you know you do. Why don't you just thank Jesus for solving our problem? Thank Jesus for his sacrifice. Thank Jesus for his teaching. Thank Jesus for saving you. And if you don't know Jesus tonight, you know you don't. You might be telling other people you do so that they'll let you hang out with them. Trust me, they would let you hang out with them anyway. It's okay. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have to pretend for these people to love you. They will still love you. I guarantee it. They might love you more, actually, because you're finally being honest with them. And that's okay. So while we're praying here for just a few minutes before the band comes up, I want you to think about this. Where are you with this stuff? Where are you with Jesus? Examine your heart. For those of you who believe, dwell on this good news. For those of you who don't believe, think on this good news. Might I urge you to pray, Lord, if you are in fact there, I want to know you. We're going to just be silent for three, four minutes. The band will come up and we're going to sing a song together afterwards. I'm going to pray and then I'll let you pray. Lord, I do just pray in gratitude for your work in completing the covenants, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law of blood payment for sin. You did that for us. Your payment is enough for all of us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Grow them in their depth of love and understanding and knowledge of you. Help them to grow closer to you through this weekend. And for my friends here who don't know you, Lord, would you reveal yourself to them? Do your saving work. There's nothing I can do to accomplish your promise to save people. That's your work. And I just pray that you would do it. Pray these things. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content. Or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.